Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians for many, many weeks, and this is our last week in the book. And as we reach the end of our studies on Ephesians, we find that Paul describes the life of a true believer in the first three chapters. Then he goes on to describe how that believer will live a spirit-filled life in chapter 4 through halfway through 6. And he goes on basically to say that if you are a true believer living in the spirit, you can be sure of a number of things. And one of these that if, is if we try and draw closer to God, we'll find ourselves in spiritual war. And in the passage before us today, we find Paul closing the letter with both a warning about that war and equally importantly, instructions on how to win it because we are the victors in Christ. So here we find that the Lord provides us with sufficient armour to combat and to thwart our adversity. Just a brief look at the chapter this morning, which is chapter 6, 10 through 20. The first three verses, Paul sets forth the basic truths regarding our necessary spiritual preparation, as well as truths regarding our enemy, our battle and our victory. In the next three or four verses, he specifies the six most important necessary pieces of equipment that we can triumph over our adversary and that's the spiritual armor that we will be talking about ultimately satan's power over christians has already been broken and that war was won through the death and resurrection of jesus the forever conquered power of sin and death he forever conquered the power of sin and of death but however life on earth goes on and there's battle of temptations it rage very very regularly in each one of us But with the Lord's power, with his strength of spirit and the force of biblical truth, we can be victorious. One of the greatest books in the 20th century on this matter was a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do so because it gives profound insight into the way Satan works to trip up humans, both Christians and non-Christians. If you're bent as to listening to books, I'd encourage you to get the audio book that was read by John Cleese, Faulty Tales, Monty Python. Not a believer, but gave it incredible um, pizzazz as he spoke it on YouTube. And you can find it as a free download on YouTube. But basically the book is written in defence of the Christian faith as a satire. So it consists of a series of 31 letters in which Screwtape, who's an experienced devil, instructs his younger charge, a junior devil called Wormwood, on effective strategies for tempting human beings that are assigned to him and making sure that that human will continue on a steady path towards damnation. It's great insight as to how Satan works to trip us up. And elsewhere, Lewis wrote a fairly classic work where he said Satan's got a number of ways to fool human beings. The first one is to convince people that he does not even exist, and if that's the case, which is the Western world by and large, he can just get on with his work unhindered. The other way he does is to magnify the power of Satan in the mind of a believer so that the believer will be too scared of him and then not trust God, which is what we need to do. So we find in this passage that Paul gives some very practical advice as how we can be effective in dealing with this enemy of the human race. Paul, as we know, wrote the book of Ephesians while he was in prison. It's one of the four prison, one of the four prison epistles, along with Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. So while Paul was under house arrest, we read that he was chained to a Roman guard for 24 hours a day. But from this intimate association with Roman soldiers, he used the armour that they wore as a metaphor for fighting spiritual warfare. And that's what he's talking about in the passage before us today. 
So looking at the passage before us, at verse 10, we find Paul saying to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We have to note that it's not our power and not our strength that he's saying to be strong in because we can't, we can't fight this war alone. But it's the Lord's strength that we need to be strong and he reiterates that three times in the passage. In verse 11, he says to put on the arm all of God's armour. And this conveys the idea of permanence indicating that our armour should be sustained and it should be a lifelong attire. And he uses the common armour worn by Roman soldiers as the analogy for the believer's spiritual armour and affirms how necessary it is that we hold our position while under attack. He goes on to talk about the strategies of the devil or in other translations, the wiles of the devil. And in the Greek, this has connotations of cleverness and crafty schemes that Satan will trick, trip us up with. And his schemes are propagated through the evil world system over which he currently rules. And these schemes are actually carried out by his demon hosts. Scripture depicts him as opposing God's work, perverting God's word, hindering God's servants, obscuring the gospel message, snaring those of us that are righteous, and holding the world in his power. He goes on to talk how it's a fight, and he uses a word like wrestling, and it's like hand-to-hand -hand combat, unlike our modern warfare. If you've ever watched the World Championship Wrestling or similar, you'll find that in wrestling there's often trickery and deception on the part of the opponent to try and trip up the person that's um, in the ring. So it is with us. Satan will try and use trickery and deception. And coping with deceptive temptation requires truth and righteousness. Satan's forces are actually highly structured and they're destructed for destructive purposes. In the same verse 12, he goes on to talk about the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. We all look around us and we see the seen world. We can see each other this morning, trees outside, the world around us. But there's a hidden spiritual world that we largely cannot see because, but we must be aware of. And scripture gives us examples of this world becoming visible to humans at various times. We find shepherds at Jesus' birth suddenly saw a host of angels. Paul being detained when he tried to go to Macedonia by a strong man. But our Western world has become spiritually blind and it actually prides itself in being too sophisticated to believe in such naive issues. This is just what Satan wants. If he can trick us into thinking he doesn't exist, um, he can get on with his work quietly and bring us down. If you want to read more in this area, I suggest you read a very compelling, a very chilling book that was written two years ago by a Christian rabbi called Jonathan Kahn. It's called The Return of the Gods. It talks in broad terms how when Jesus came to this earth, he banished the gods that were prevalent in the Middle East, the gods of the neighbouring cities or countries around Israel that often infiltrated Israel. But in latter times, as the West is forsaken God these gods and demons have become back into the west and we see that in the chaos around us with a lot of the confusion about sexuality the decision to allow babies to be killed at birth um, all these things and he says there's three main gods that tormented the ancient world and they were the gods of Baal, Molech and Ishtar and they're actually made a recurrence back in the 20th century into the western world. I'd encourage you to read it um, don't be frightened by it, but it is quite chilling and quite insightful. However, we, what we read in Colossians is that God created these beings, these evil beings, and is in such his control over them. But Paul tells us how we're in this warfare and we need to fight, and he tells us to put on every piece of armour. The first three pieces of armour he talks about, the girdle, the breastplate and the shoes, were worn continually on the battlefield. The last three, the shield, the helmet and the sword, 
were kept ready for use when actual fighting began. So as we look at them one by one, as Paul starts in verse 14, he again tells us to stand our ground, not to give up but to fight. That's the third time that he uses this in a few verses, so it obviously means it's important that we must stand firm and confront the evil that's around us. So whether it's confronting Satan's efforts to get us to distrust God, or to hinder our service to God, or to bring division amongst the church, to live in a hypocritical way, to follow the world in the way we live, or in any other way where we reject biblical obedience, the armour is our defence against this happening. So the first thing he talks about is the belt. Roman soldiers wore a tunic of very loose-fitting cloth. Ancient combat was largely hand-to-hand, and a loose tunic had a great potential to get caught up and the enemy could grab hold of it, bring the soldier down. So a belt was used to cinch up the loosely hanging material, tighten around the waist to protect the loins, and the saying, gird your loins, came from that. Pulls all the loose ends together as preparation for battle. Roman soldiers also put on the belt to hold all the other pieces of armour in place. So in the same way, that belt pulls all our spiritual lens, in the same way, that belt pulls all our spiritual loose ends together with truth. And the idea is of a severe commitment to fight and to win without hypocrisy, with self-discipline and devotion to victory. Everything else that hinders us is tucked away or tied up. And in order to fight the devil successfully, we need to know the truth and to wrap it around us like a soldier's belt. The second one is the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier wore a breastplate that was tough. It was usually a sleeveless piece of leather or heavy material and had animal horns or hoof pieces sewn into it to add protection. And it covered the full front of the body, protecting the heart, the lungs and the other vital organs. Even though the soldier still had a shield, arrows could come from every angle and there are often too many for the shield to deflect. Therefore, the breastplate was that final protection to keep the fiery darts from getting through to the vital organs. Though the breastplate protected during the battle, but it only protected the front and not the back. It offered no protection to a soldier's back because soldiers were instructed not to turn and run away, but to continue to fight. And we read in James, that's the same for us. James tells us to resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we can't resist the devil if we've got our backs to him running away. So for the Christian, the breastplate is the righteousness that can protect us from Satan's attacks. Without righteousness, we leave ourselves open to Satan's attacks. And to be righteousness is basically to be obedient to God. Righteousness is a core quality of God along with holiness, and we're instructed to be like that. And it's our chief protection against Satan and his schemes. And God has called us to righteousness and holiness. As believers, living faithfully in obedience and communion with Jesus, his own righteousness will protect us in the practical daily righteousness that becomes our spiritual breastplate. But lack of holiness or righteousness leaves us vulnerable to the enemy of our souls, which is Satan. And we go back as far as the Old Testament in Solomon, we find Solomon saying, above all else, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. Everything we do flows from it. So the breastplate of righteousness is our final defence. The third thing is shoes. Our feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. During Paul's day, shoes were worn by Roman soldiers were different to the sandals worn by others. They were specifically designed to keep a soldier's foot healthy. They were covered with several layers of leather, spikes in them to get good grip in arduous times. And it's the same for us. We need to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace that will give us a footing to go wherever God leads us. We all have a call in our life to be led and to go and speak the gospel. It suggests also a mindset that's ready to go when asked to be sent 
and to preach the gospel. As soldiers of Christ, we must put on the shoes that will allow us to march where we are needed. The fourth thing is the shield of faith. Roman soldiers had a large shield, about four and a half by two and a half feet, made of several layers of leather, wood, canvas and metal front, weighed about 10 kilos and was strapped to the arm rather than held on the arm and it could actually be used as an offensive weapon as well to push away but mainly it was for defence. They used to, douse the, used to douse the shield with water to protect it from fiery darts because one of the enemy's tricks for Romans was to put their arrow in oil, light it, fire it and then it would set fire to the soldier. So water on it helped to stop these fiery darts from getting a grip. The faith that Paul refers to here is not the body of doctrine that we recite when we say the Nicene Creed, but it's our basic trust, our personal trust in God and his promises, which is absolutely necessary to protect us from the temptations of every sort of sin. All sin basically comes when we fall to Satan's lies and the promises he gives of pleasure and rejecting the better choice of obedience and blessing. He talks of fiery darts and temptations are like fiery darts, the flaming arrows that the enemy will shoot at us, but our shield, which has been drenched in oil, drenched in water, can deflect them and put them out. The sixth thing is the helmet of salvation, which is important to guard our mind, and I'm skipping over that this morning because Phoebe will pick up on that in the next section. The seventh is the sword of the spirit, which refers to a small sword, six to 18 inches long, that was used defensively to fend off an attack, but also offensively to harm. The sword used by Romans was fearsome because it was two-edged, sharpened on either side, so whatever way you hit, it would slash a sharp point so you could actually stab and pierce armour. And in the same way, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is used defensively to fend off Satan's attacks, but also offensively to destroy the enemy's strategies. And the main evidence we find of that was Jesus when he was tempted, how he fought back at Satan with scripture. Paul writes... We're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. We knock down strongholds of human reasoning and we destroy these false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle and we capture their rebellious thoughts that keeps people from knowing God and teach them to obey Christ. And we read that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It was a soldier's only weapon, and the first five pieces we've talked about are defensive, but the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is our offensive weapon where we can stay on the attack. The other thing he closes with is saying that prayer, although it's not one of the pieces that he talks about of armour, he says pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So even after we've put on the armour, we still need to pray. Prayer brings and keeps us in communion with God so the armour can then protect us as long as we're wearing it. Paul says in Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, and that includes when we're wearing our armour as well. So in closing, this passage is Paul at his practical best. It gives us a great analogy so we can apply it to our daily lives and we can end up as more than conquerors because that's what God expects of us and that is what we're capable of doing. Just a question in closing before Phoebe comes up. How can I apply this teaching of Paul to our day-to-day -day lives? Thank you. Good morning, Chapel. Rather than spend five minutes chatting now, which we sometimes do, we'll wrap it all up and chat at the end. So we are closing on Ephesians this week, and I personally feel very privileged to have been able to both open and close our series on Ephesians with you. So thank you for the opportunity. We just had such a wonderful look at the armour of God, and what I want to do, as you heard, is take just one of those items of armour and hone in on it a bit more. The helmet of salvation. 
So let's talk first about helmets. <clears throat> well, helmets date back to approximately 2500 BC, traditionally made of bronze and worn by soldiers. But from 1882 AD, helmets have entered the workplace in the form of the hard hat. And in 1990, in Australia, it became mandatory for bike riders to wear helmets, which reduced the risk of serious head injury by 69%. As you can see in these fairly gruesome and graphic images, the helmet protects the wearer by taking the injury upon itself. All the damage, all the destruction, all the hurt that would be inflicted on the wearer's head is instead transferred to the helmet. The helmet might be destroyed in the process, but it has done its job because the wearer remains unharmed. This is exactly what Jesus did for us at the cross when he bought salvation. He took the price of sin upon himself. He took all the pain, all the hurt, all the damage that should have been ours upon himself, and we call it salvation. He bore the damage so that we can be free and whole. So it's fitting that in Paul's description... Salvation takes the form of a helmet. You've just heard from my dad all about the armour of God. It is vivid and intentional imagery by Paul. Paul's not messing around here. He is deadly serious. And when it comes to this stuff, so should we be. Put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. We're called to be armed and ready. Ready to fight, ready to protect and ready to stand our ground. Because while the war is won, there is still a battle raging. Now, can I be very clear here? The victory over sin and death is already won. Jesus won that at the cross with his death and resurrection. The war is over. The outcome is decided we are on the winning side. Romans 8.37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And yet... Paul is equally adamant that there is still a battle raging for us this side of eternity. How can this be? How can we still be fighting a battle when the war is over? Well, it's actually not that unusual. The War of 1812 between the US and Britain officially ended on Christmas Eve 1814. But in January 1815, British soldiers attacked New Orleans because they didn't get the memo that they had lost. Now, you might say, Phoebe, that was 200 years ago. That would never happen in this day and age. We have the internet now. No, especially in certain countries and their politics that will remain unnamed, there would never be a team that loses and refuses to concede defeat, right? That would never happen. At the cross, Jesus defeated the power of sin and death. The enemy has been defeated, but they're choosing to ignore it. They continue on the, the attack, trying to take as many casualties as they can before that last trumpet sounds. But we who are here in the battle can have the confidence that even though the fighting continues, the verdict is decided. John says in his first letter when discussing the Antichrist, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. So we all have a body, a mind and a spirit, all given by God and all serving different functions. The body, the fallen physical self is decaying away. The Bible often refers to this part of us as the flesh. If not managed, the body is weak and seeks only the pleasure of today. Living to please only the body we refer to as hedonism. Then there's the spirit, that's the deepest part of ourselves, the part that enables us to commune with God, to worship our spirit was renewed at the moment of salvation and is in continual communion with the Holy Spirit. 
And then there's the mind, our emotions, our thoughts, that which goes on inside our heads. Our minds need to be renewed day by day, and this is where the battle lies. Now, our minds, our thoughts, our emotions, in and of themselves, they're not bad. They are, in fact, a gift from God. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our minds. Our minds, our emotions have the power to inspire action and empathy, but they should never control us. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Bible actually has a lot to say about our minds and the check we need to keep on them. Romans 8 tells us that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And the tension point of flesh-led life versus spirit-led life lies right here in the middle, in the mind. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So when Paul talks about being a soldier equipped for battle and putting on the armour of God, we know that the war is already won. The victory is ours in a spirit that is redeemed and restored. But even though the war is over, there is still a battle raging that we need to be prepared to fight. And where is this battle taking place? It's at that tension point in our minds, the tension point between living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit. The tension point, the struggle, it takes place in the mind. And when a soldier puts on their armour, what does the helmet protect? It protects the head, the mind. Now, in a battle, there are two sides. As my four-year-old will tell you, there are the goodies and the baddies. Now, when we see traditional depictions of warfare, the two opposing armies we each wears a uniform so they can identify their comrades and they can also identify the enemy. In the battle of our minds, it is equally important to identify the enemy. The trouble is the enemy doesn't always wear a brightly coloured uniform. The enemy is more subtle than that, more sneaky. And it is all the more imperative to identify the enemy. And in the battle in our minds, the enemy can be either external or internal. So external enemies can be either from the world, from Satan, or a combination of both. The world would present us a picture of what normal looks like, which is counter to God's truth for us. And this can act as an external enemy in our minds. If we look to the world to find the benchmark of normal relationships, normal behaviour, normal self-worth, life looks pretty dark. The world tells us that we should put ourselves and our needs first in relationships. But God says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. The world tells us that pornography is normal and unavoidable, something that we should bring into relationships. But Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Michael Kramer shared with us last week on God-Centred Marriage. It was a phenomenal message. It's available on the podcast if you missed it. He shared some of the statistics about relationships in our current age. And to paraphrase him, only 20% of couples live in what we would call vital, fulfilled, loving relationships. So the remaining 80% of all couples either end in separation or live in some form of dysfunction. And this is the example that the world would tell us is normal. 
Extrapolate this in as many directions as you like, but the world has a very bad track record for demonstrating healthy, life-giving, soul-enriching behaviour. And if we want to live elevated lives, lives of freedom, we should not be looking to the world for our example. And Paul was very clear about this throughout the book of Ephesians. He tells us, put off your old self, be made new in the attitude of your minds. When it comes to the battle in our minds, the world is our enemy. The other external enemy is Satan. Now, we don't spend a lot of time talking about Satan here at the chapel because we don't make him our focus. Jesus is our focus and Jesus defeated Satan at the cross so that we can live in freedom. But also Paul is still very clear in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can't ignore this teaching. The enemy, the thief, comes to steal, kill and destroy and is adamant that we shouldn't live abundantly. And he has this way of getting in our ear and whispering lies to us. He says things like, mm, you got it wrong again, you, you never get it right, you're doomed to failure, you're not worthy of salvation. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But we don't need to live in fear in this space. We don't need to get hung up on this. Because remember where we keep our focus, which is on Jesus. Jesus defeated the enemy once and for all. And James 4.7 says, Humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But we can't always blame the external forces for the negative thoughts that pop up in our minds. Nope, some of these thought patterns we cultivate all on our own. These are our internal enemies. And if left long enough, these negative thought patterns can take root and become strongholds deep within us. The lies that we live with can become so embedded within us that we don't even recognise them as lies anymore. If you've been told your whole life that you're worthless, if that's the only message that you've ever received, you'll start to believe that it's true. If you have spent your life striving to perform, you will start to believe that your value lies in your ability to perform, which is all very well until you're no longer able to perform, and then your whole sense of worth comes crashing down. But the story doesn't end there, because here enters salvation, the helmet that protects our mind. The beauty of salvation lies in the fact that we are all broken, fallen individuals. But by the grace of God, we are all subject to that sinful nature. We are all prone to fall into these negative thought patterns. And left to our own devices, we would all live in darkness. But in the midst of the darkness, there is light. To escape from this darkness, we are not required to generate the light. We are not required to strive harder or be better or somehow hide the darkness in the hopes that no one sees it. When a room is dark, what do we do? Turn on the light. In our minds, it's no different. When in our own strength and ability we're in the darkness, what do we do? We turn on the light. We receive the light and the light banishes the darkness. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we lived in darkness, we were prisoners of old thinking, stinking thinking. In old thinking, our minds tell us we need to compare, compete, to achieve salvation in our own performance. And when we inevitably slip up, we're left feeling that there's something wrong with us, that we're inadequate, not worthy of salvation. 
But we don't live in the darkness, we live in the light. And Ephesians 5, 8 says, Once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord, so live as people of the light. In the light, we are called to new thinking, to salvation thinking. New thinking says that my value is not determined by what I do, but by who God says I am. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, and that includes the old thinking. Now, we've established that we are not responsible for generating the light. We receive the light. But how do we metaphorically turn on that light switch? Well, first we look upwards. Fellowship with God on a daily basis because he is your strength. Protecting your mind is not just about thinking harder on good things and forcing yourself to think less on bad things. That is a recipe for failure because in our own strength, we cannot do it. But we weren't asked to do it in our own strength. The helmet that protects our minds is not of us. It's from God. And the more we spend time with God, submitting our way to him, worshipping him, becoming like him, the more we receive the mind of Christ and receive the helmet of salvation. So how do we combat these lies? With the truth. The word of God is the weapon you fight back with. With it, you cut down every argument. You renew your life, you restore your story. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. When Paul lists the armour of God, the helmet of salvation is listed right next to the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, because the helmet and the sword work in partnership. If you want to protect your mind, you need to speak the truth found in the word of God. So look upwards and look forwards. Whatever you believe to be true will become the dominating theme in your life. If you believe that your negative thought pattern is too much for you to overcome or your care for what others think or your addiction, if you believe that is too much for you to overcome, then it will be. But overcoming starts with believing that we can overcome, believing that he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. And we don't typically overcome an ingrained thought pattern in one sweeping moment. For most people, it's one step at a time, one right decision at a time, like individual bricks laid down one on top of the other to build a great house of victory. Each day that we choose to live in new thinking is another day of victory. Each day that we choose to dwell in the word of God is another brick laid down and the next day gets a little easier and comes a little more naturally. Then you go one more day. Then you go one more day. And before you know it, it's 30 days and it's becoming habitual. And every day that you commit to salvation thinking, you gain another victory. And every time the lies pop up again, either from internal or external sources, you pull out the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and you defeat the lie with the truth. So when temptation strikes, you declare Romans 8, 9, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the spirit. When fear comes upon you, you quote Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? When the lies whisper to you that you're a failure, that you'll never get it right, you shout out 2 Peter 1 verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. Before your feet hit the floor in the morning, start speaking truth. Our spirit is renewed in one miraculous moment at salvation, but our minds must be constantly renewed. And when we actively put on the helmet of salvation, we are choosing to turn on the lights and to receive the mind of Christ. And James 1 verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
Thank you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.